In the 1960s, Life magazine reported an incident that happened to President John F. Kennedy. The article read, a special top secret direct line linked the president and the strategic Air Force bomber and missile commands. Early one morning, the president was awakened by a call on this line. Expecting the worst, he picked up the phone, braced himself, and said, this is the president. The voice on the other end of the line said, Oh, I'm sorry, I must have the wrong number. I'm trying to reach a French laundry. You know, it's intriguing to think that a person, a random person no less, could accidentally gain access to a top secret line and call a person as important as the President of the United States. But you and I have access to a top secret line that connects us with someone even more important than the president. As Christians, you and I can talk with God. Jesus knew this tremendous privilege called prayer. While he was on earth, the heavenly switchboard stayed lit up. Our Lord Jesus was always praying. During his baptism, he prayed. At his transfiguration, he prayed. Even on the cross, Jesus prayed. In the four Gospels, you'll discover that before every major decision or announcement Jesus made, he first took time to pray. And this is why in Luke chapter 11, his disciples came to Jesus and they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. You know, they could have asked Jesus to teach them to do a lot of things. Lord, teach us to heal the sick. That would have been nice. Or raise the dead or multiply the loaves and fishes. That would have been really fun. Or to walk on water or to cast out demons. But no, they didn't ask him those things. Instead, they asked Jesus to teach them to pray. Apparently, Jesus' disciples had gathered that the secret to their master's miraculous life was somehow tied to his ability to pray and to pray effectively. Understand, we do need to learn to pray. We have to be taught to pray. A vibrant, effective prayer life doesn't just come naturally. We do need instruction. They were right to say, Lord, teach us to pray. In James chapter 4, verse 3, we're told, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. In other words, you ask improperly. Not all prayers are effective prayers. That's why Jesus' words this morning are so important. He models for us successful praying. Notice in verse 9, Jesus begins his instructions, In this manner, therefore pray. In this manner, or along these lines, or after this pattern. Jesus knew that proper prayer is better caught than taught. Prayer is best learned by example, and so he gives us a model prayer. In these verses, Jesus supplies his disciples the scaffolding for structuring a prayer life. This prayer is a skeleton. It's a framework. Think of it as an outline for you to use. Now, there's nothing wrong with reciting the disciples' prayer on occasion. But realize this prayer was never intended for mindless memorization or rote recital. 
In high school, our football team, we would always gather in the locker room before every game, and we'd kneel down, and we'd put our hands in a pile. It wasn't that we were really religious. It was just that this was what you did before you played a football game. And we would mumble through the Lord's Prayer. But it kind of, you know, reaches a crescendo, you know, as you pray it, especially when a football team prays it. And by the time we got to the end, we were all barking, for that is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And then we'd all run out of the locker room yelling, kill them, stomp them, hurt them. Let's win. Obviously, we were praying amiss. Our football team was guilty of the prohibition Jesus gave two verses earlier in chapter 6. Do not use vain repetition. Hey, it is easier to recite this prayer than it is to learn from this prayer. But that's the Lord's intention. It is a model prayer. It's a structure for our own words. It's not just a script for us to echo. When Arthur writes of this prayer, in fewer than 70 words, we find a masterpiece of the infinite mind of God who alone could compress every conceivable element of true prayer into such a brief and simple form, a form even a young child can understand, but a mature believer cannot fully comprehend. That's the prayer we have before us this morning. Understand, Jesus' model prayer is prayer in perfect proportion. It's an exact blend of the three types of prayer, worship and petition and intercession. Notice first, it begins and ends with worship. In fact, over half of this prayer is devoted to worship. You know, so often we jump right into our requests. We have our long list of uh, things we want from God without really taking time to praise God for who He is. Every prayer needs to take time to bow our knee and to admire His beauty and to express our devotion. It's only after he knows we love him for who he is that we can then make our requests. Thus, petition follows. After praise, we then can petition God with both our physical and our spiritual needs. And then finally, there's intercession sprinkled throughout this prayer. Notice the pronouns that Jesus uses. They're all plural pronouns. Our Father, give us, lead us. The implication is that prayer is not just something we do for ourselves, by ourselves. It's something we do in corporate activity. It's a group activity. In addition to private prayer, we also need to pray with and for one another. In fact, this kind of prayer, the kind of prayer that we'll be doing this week, it picks up steam. There's an added power to together prayers. Jesus said this in Matthew 18. If two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. When my four kids were all living at home, and they would get together on rare occasion and express a common desire, I was always eager to answer it. Hey, if my kids could finally get together and agree on something, you know, if they could actually come together and I could satisfy all four kids at once, <laughs> I'm in. And I think this is God's attitude. 
He loves it when his people can agree together on a request, and he's quick to answer and to provide their needs. Reminds me of the young lady who did all her praying selfishly, by herself, for herself. At the time, she was praying diligently for a husband. In church, she heard the pastor say that she needed to pray for others. So that night, she went home, and she prayed, Lord, please give my, my, please give my mom a good son-in-law. I suppose it was a step in the right direction, but she still missed the point. We need to pray for each other, with each other. And that's what we plan to do this coming week. But Jesus continues his model prayer in verse 9. He says, In this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven. Now the common vernacular in Palestine during New Testament times and the language that Jesus spoke was the Aramaic form of Hebrew. And in Aramaic, the word Father is the term Abba or daddy. It was a tender, loving, informal term. You would have never heard a Jew at the time of Jesus address the God of the universe as daddy. To the Hebrews, God was a righteous dictator to be feared, to be revered. He was more a Godfather than God the Father, not a papa to whom you could run and with whom you could play and cuddle. But Jesus taught us a different side to God. He taught us that when we go to God, we need to remember that we're His children and that He is our Abba. There is an intimacy a Christian can have with God. Think for a moment. The supreme power of the universe, the holy, omnipotent, sovereign creator of all things invites us, wants us calls us to refer to him as daddy. Every time you gaze at a soothing sunset or a dazzling night sky, you can swell up with pride and praise, and you can think, wow, my father made that. I have some friends who live up in North Carolina. They used to go to our church, but they moved to the mountains of North Carolina where they now attend an old backwoods country church. And they got him a country pastor. They told me that four or five times in his sermon, no matter what he's talking about, doesn't matter the, ta- the sermon he's preaching, but about at least four or five times during the sermon, he'll just stop. And in his old country draw, he'll say, Now don't you forget it. Daddy loves his little chilling. Isn't that great? Hey, and don't you forget it. You have a Father in heaven who really loves you. We need to think of God as our loving Father, our Abba. He cares for us with a sheltering love. He's quick to forgive us. He's willing to trust us with the keys of the car even when we've proven we don't deserve it. He's first to celebrate our triumphs, and He's first to comfort us in our defeats. God wants to be a dad, an Abba to you. You know, we hear a lot of talk these days about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, as if all humans are brothers and God is the father of us all. That's true only in a very narrow physical sense. Certainly, we are all made in God's own image and likeness, but that doesn't mean that there's a spiritual connection or a relation between each other 
are between us and God. Actually, in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus told certain Jews, he says, you are of your father the devil. Their spiritual paternity was of the devil, not God. They had the traits and the nature indicative of the devil. John 1, verse 12, identifies God's true children, but as many as receive Christ, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Only the Christian, the follower of Jesus, has the genuine right to call God his or her father. You know, it's interesting, whenever Jesus addressed God, he always called him Father or Abba. And this amazed the disciples, that he was on such intimate terms with God. No one else spoke to God like this. But now, here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus turns to his disciples, and he tells them that they too can relate to the eternal God as Daddy. The implication Jesus makes is that the disciples' relationship with the Father God is now the same they now have the same intimate terms with the Father as Jesus had with his Father. In Christ, we too can approach God with the same confidence that Jesus had in his approaching God. The Father is just as accessible, just as willing to listen to us, just as eager to help us as he was to help Jesus. To address God as our Father reminds us that we can come boldly, not just sheepishly, to God. We can expect the Almighty to hear and to answer our prayers. You need to remember, Daddy loves his little children. I love what the great preacher Spurgeon once said about our prayers. He says, prayer pulls the rope down below and the great bells ring above in the ears of God. Some scarcely stir the bell for they pray so timidly. Others give only an occasional jerk at the rope. But he who communicates with heaven is the man who grasps the rope boldly and pulls continuously with all his might. Are you yanking on the bell? Are you pulling as hard as you can on the rope of prayer, the blessings that God has given you? Since God is our Father, we can pray boldly. And so we're to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I'm sure you've heard of the little boy who came home from Sunday school claiming that he now knew, knew God's name. He told his mom, it's Howard. He misunderstood this verse. It's not Howard be your name. It's Hallowed be your name. The word hallow is the Greek word hagios, which means to set apart. It means to treat as different or unique. From it, we get the word holy. To say that God is love is one thing, but to say that God is holy is to say that he loves in a way that no one else loves. To say that God is faithful is one thing, but to say that God is holy is to say that he's faithful in a way that no one else is faithful. To hallow God's name is to note his specialness, that he is in a category by himself that nothing and no one else compares to him. To hallow God's name is to recognize how different and how unique he is from us. You know, sometimes we pray. When we pray, we project 
our own human limitations upon God. We assume that He can work only in ways that we can imagine. If we can't figure out a way for it to get done, we tend to lack the confidence that God can do it. But when I hallow His name, I realize that I am talking to omnipotence. That I'm praying to a God with whom nothing is impossible. Realize familiarity in a relationship is nice, but it also has its pitfalls. If we're not careful, familiarity can cause us to lose our sense of awe and reverence in the God to whom we're praying. Yes, God is my daddy, but he's also my Lord, my master, my ruler. God is imminent. That means he is as close to you as a daddy, as a father. But he is also transcendent. That means he rules over the universe. And we need to keep both in mind when we pray. God is both infinitely high and he is also intimately nigh. You know, C.S. Lewis once said, The prayer preceding all prayers should be, May it be the real I who prays. May it be the real you that I pray to. We cannot pray properly until we get honest with ourselves. That it's the real I who prays. But I also have to fix my mind on the person to whom I'm praying. Prayer needs to be the true me talking to the true God. Sometimes we forget to whom we're praying. Once a pastor turned to his congregation and he said, Now, let us pray for good luck. Really? This is why Jesus calls on us to hallow God's name when we pray. To focus on who he is that we're actually addressing. Next we should pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Once we see God enthroned in heaven full of glory and grace, then we can contrast our current situation on earth. Man on the throne, a world full of suffering and shame. And that prompts us to pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, please reign on earth even as you reign now in heaven. In a sense, when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're looking to the future when Jesus returns. One day he will establish his throne on this earth. He'll rule the world a thousand years. The kingdom of God is the final, visible, physical kingdom that's yet to come. And we're to pray for this. We're to pray for Jesus to come again. Revelation 22 verse 17 tells us, the spirit and the bride, by the way, the bride's us, says come. We need to pray, Lord, please come quickly. But when the Bible speaks of God's kingdom, it's not just talking about something future. His kingdom also occupies the here and now. Remember in Luke 17, the Pharisees, they asked Jesus, they said, where's this kingdom that you've been talking about? Jesus told them, the kingdom of God does not come visibly, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Before the king comes to rule physically over human governments, he first comes to rule spiritually over human hearts. And thus to pray to God, your kingdom come, 
is to surrender your will to the master. It's to give Jesus prerogative to order your life as he sees fit, to sit on the throne of your heart and build his kingdom in you. Have you given him that prerogative this morning? This means that prayer is never our opportunity to bend God's will to ours, but to align our will with his, to get in sync with his plans, not entice God to prop up ours. You know, too often we're like little babies. We're egocentric. The whole world just revolves around us. Life is no bigger than ourselves, our concerns no greater than how it affects us. Notice how Jesus begins this prayer. He says we need to get our focus on God. It's all about your name and your kingdom and your will. When we pray, we do well to realize the world was not organized for our comfort, but for our training. The priority in prayer is always, your will, Lord, be done. And then next, Jesus tells us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Understand the word bread here speaks not just of a food group, but of all of our daily sustenance. Bread was a synonym for basic needs, food and clothing and shelter and job and transportation. Jesus is telling us that as God's kids, we need to take our physical needs to Him. There's an old Jimmy Stewart movie, it's called Shenandoah, where the family is sitting around the dinner table and the father, crotchety old fella, he bows his head to return thanks. Stuart prays the most terrible prayer I've ever heard. He basically takes credit for everything and yet still throws in a little thanks to God. As a matter of fact, I'll let you listen to it. Here it goes. Is that the most terrible prayer you've ever heard? We work dog bone hard for all this, Lord, but we thank you anyway. But I'm afraid that's our attitude sometimes. We take the credit, then we slip God some thin, thin hollow thank you. Hey, it's a short-sighted attitude that doesn't recognize God as the source of all our material blessings. So what if you work hard? God gave you the health and the stamina, did he not? James 1 verse 17 tells us, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Your boss might employ you, but it's God who gives you the strength to work. Hold your breath for 90 seconds and you'll see how dependent you are on God. You need him for your very next breath. Heard of a little old lady who lived next door to an outspoken atheist. She loved the Lord, but this atheist was always mocking her, mocking her faith, her devotion. Well, the lady was very poor, but for the little she had, she always thanked the Lord. Well, one day she was praying by her window, Lord, I need some groceries. Please, Lord, please provide my needs. Well, the atheist heard her prayer. He decided that he would go out and buy her some groceries, sit them out there on the front porch, and then when she found them, 
he would jump out and he would take credit once she started praising the Lord. Well, as soon as the lady opened the door that day and saw the groceries on the front steps, the atheist popped out of the bushes. She said, look at this, praise the Lord. God heard my prayer and he provided my need. The atheist scoffed, no, you don't. God didn't provide you those groceries. I bought them with my own money. The lady thought for a second, and then she got real excited. She shouted, wow, that means God got me the groceries and made the devil pay the bill. <laughs> Notice God promises us our daily bread, not our daily cake. You notice that? Not our daily caviar, not our daily chocolate mousse. God promises to meet our needs, not our whims. I read recently where 100 years ago the average man had 70 wants. Today his grandson has 500 wants. God does not promise to indulge our every desire, but he does promise to meet every single one of our needs. Notice too, God promises to provide our daily bread. This is important. He doesn't necessarily meet our monthly needs all at once or our yearly needs. You know, we'd all like to be able to place an annual order for God just to drop a year's supply on us. Wouldn't that be great? But God wants us coming to Him every day. That's why He gives us the daily portion. You know, when Israel wandered through the wilderness... God provided their needs each and every morning. He sent the miracle manna, the bread from heaven. Israel would go out and would gather up the manna off the ground, but there was one condition. They couldn't collect more than that day's portion. If they tried to hoard bread for a few extra days, it would rot, it would sour. God wanted them looking to Him on a day-by-day, even hour-by-hour basis. And this is how God wants us to trust Him, day by day, even moment by moment. One of my favorite sayings, yard by yard, life is hard, whereas inch by inch, life's a cinch. Don't get ahead of God. Pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And we also can pray and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, when you become a Christian, all your sin, your past sin, your present sin, your future sin, gets washed away with the blood of Jesus. But when you sin, you still need to ask God for His forgiveness. For God knows it is the act of asking that keeps our heart spiritually conditioned, that keeps us humble and honest. Fertile and frank, sensitive and submissive. It's the unrepentant attitude that chokes out and strangles God's work in our lives. It's been said, when we pray, we must lay before God what is in us, not what ought to be in us. Remember, it's got to be the real God to whom I pray, but it also has to be the real me that's praying. No phony facades when we pray. It has to be the real person, what's really going on in my heart. I can't pretend. Prayer is no place for pretending. 
Prayer is a place for brutal honesty. And it's when we come clean, that's when we feel, that's when we sense God's forgiveness. That's when the burden gets lifted, when the joy becomes real. Someone commented once, bread is to our body what forgiveness is to our soul. And that's so true. A guilty conscience and a hungry stomach act in a similar manner. Both keep gnawing at us. Both hold us in bondage. Both preoccupy our thinking. Both even dictate our behavior. Forgiveness is what satisfies a guilty psyche like bread eases the pain of a famished stomach. Notice Jesus uses an interesting word for sin here. He calls it debt. Sin creates a debt. A debt to God. It hangs a cloud over our heads. The interest is accumulating. The due date is getting closer. The only relief is God's forgiveness. Recall on the cross, Jesus uttered the words, It is finished. In the Greek language, it's one word. Te telestai. It was a term that Jesus borrowed from the business world of Jerusalem. When a debt was paid, the creditor would write on the man's account, Tetelestai, or paid in full. Only Jesus can erase your debt of sin. But according to the text, you can only ask for forgiveness if you're willing to get it, give it. Notice this. We're allowed to pray, forgive us our debts as... We forgive our debtors. We have to be willing to forgive if we want forgiveness. God will forgive you, but to the extent you forgive others. In other words, God supplies us with forgiveness, but you determine the size of your bucket. If you want total forgiveness, make sure you still don't harbor a grudge. You know, often we call this model prayer the Lord's Prayer. But I think it's here in verse 12 that it makes it clear Jesus would have never had to pray this prayer. He had no need to pray, forgive us our debts, because Jesus had never sinned. This is not the Lord's Prayer. This is our prayer. A better name for it would be the disciples' prayer. And then we should also pray, and do not lead us into temptation. A few years ago, some thieves broke into some cars in the parking lot of Burkmar Methodist Church. A note appeared in their church newsletter the following week encouraging church members not to leave valuables in their cars. The note concluded, let us not lead others into temptation and maybe we will be delivered from evil. <laughs> That's not the meaning of our text. <laughs> Realize that Jesus' concern at the beginning of verse 13 here, isn't that God is going to lead us into some kind of temptation or that God is going to orchestrate a temptation in our lives? James chapter 1, verse 13 makes that very clear. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. The thought here is not that God would ever tempt us to do evil, but we may take on too much ourselves. We may not be wise where we go and what we do. We may put ourselves 
into some tempting situations that we can't handle. And in essence, Jesus is telling us that we can pray, God, if you see us getting in over our heads, Lord, if you see me biting off more than I can chew, then please save me from my own foolishness. Lord, steer me clear from any tempting situations. That's an important prayer for us to pray. Whenever I drive in rush hour traffic around town, I tune into WSB and smiling Mark McKay. I guess he took over for Captain Herb. Smiling Mark McKay. He's called the gridlock guy for a reason. He flies over the city's interstates in a helicopter and he checks on all the congested areas. See, he sees more than I do. His vantage point is higher than mine. He sees the accidents and the bottlenecks and the stalls. He gets you home by leading you around those temptations. And this is how God steers our lives. He wants us to get to our heavenly home. So if we ask Him, He'll guide us. He'll lead us around the dangers and around the difficulties. Lord, lead us not into temptation. And then we should also pray, deliver us from the evil one. It's significant here that Jesus tells us to pray for protection against Satan. You know, the Puritan preacher Thomas Watson once said, Satan envies man's happiness to see a cloud of dust, that's us, a cloud of dust so near to God and himself, once a glorious angel, cast out of heavenly paradise, makes him curse mankind with incurable hatred. Never underestimate the devil's hatred for you and for me. The evil one is constantly plotting our demise. How foolish for us to assume that we can handle Satan on our own. Martin Luther wrote, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. We are no match for the evil one. But hey, Satan is no match for Jesus. Never forget 1 John 4, verse 4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus has overcome the wicked one. On the cross, he's vanquished our arch enemy. He's broken the chains of evil. He's crushed Satan's power. Satan and his cronies now have to flee at the mere mention of Jesus' name. He is more than able to deliver us. So, Lord, please deliver us from the evil one. The night before Jesus was crucified, he prayed for his disciples this very prayer. In John 17, verse 15, Jesus prayed, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Our Father heard the prayer of his Son, and for Jesus' sake, he delivers us from Satan's snares. When we're attacked spiritually, whether by sickness or by depression or by a barrage of evil thoughts that come out of nowhere or perhaps by a chain of terrible circumstances, recognize you're under assault and pray for the Father's deliverance. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us, Lord, from the evil one. And then the prayer ends, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory 
Amen. And that word amen, it means right on. Absolutely. You can bank on it. It's a word of affirmation. Here Jesus ends his model prayer just as he began it, with worship and with praise. We can never enter into prayer effectively until we truly worship, but neither can we exit prayer and face a hostile world with courage and hope without worship in our hearts, without our eyes on God. Well, let me sum it up for you this morning. Here's how we need to pray. Our Father in heaven, never forget, Daddy loves his little children. Hallowed be your name. God is a friend for sure, but he's more than a friend. He's our boss. He's everybody's boss. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer's about submitting to God's will, not trying to get God to submit to us. It's God first. And then, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. God drives a bread truck, and he makes daily deliveries. And he tells us we need to make sure that we're one of his stops on his route. You can ask. He'll, he'll deliver. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know, the only sin God won't forgive is a sin we won't confess. So admit it. Just get it out there, and God will wipe it away. And do not lead us into temptation. Why? Because God is in the traffic copter. And he's seeing all the snarl ups and all the problems. And he's able to get us home if we just ask. And deliver us, Lord, from the evil one. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. God can deliver if you'll just ask. And then the prayer closes. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. When we get our eyes on God in prayer, His kingdom, His power, His glory becomes realities in our lives and in our church. And so here's how we're going to end this morning. We're all going to stand together. Guess what we're going to do? We're going to recite the Lord's Prayer. How about that? But we're not going to do it the way my football team used to do it. We're going to realize there's more to it than that. And we're going to recite it and think about it as we do. And then this week we're all going to gather together and we're going to use it as a model for our own praying and for our own uh, prayers for each other and for our church. So in this manner, therefore, pray. Are you ready? You ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.